Welcome to the Next in Melbourne podcast, designed to help accountants grow their practices. This podcast interviews the knowledge base in the Next Year accounting firm to provide you with insights and examples of how to better advise your clients, helping you retain your bigger clients and grow your practice overall. We hope you enjoy the show. Welcome to the Next Year podcast. Today we have Greg Baker, who is a senior financial planner with a wealth of experience that he's going to share with you today. So I'd like to welcome Greg to the podcast. Thank you, Andrew. So what I'd like to start with and what we always like to do is get to know you a little bit better. So I'd like to know a bit more about what you do now. And then we're going to delve back in time to go through your very long and rich history of working <laughs> at some very premium institutions, I've noted. Um, about your financial planning history and to get some wise words from you for our listeners today. So first of all, just tell me what you do here from day to day. Tell me a bit about the role. Okay, so my role here is to provide advice for our client base. Our clients vary. We've got a lot of very high net wealth clients. We also have a lot of affluent clients. So people who are you know, often business owners, they're building their wealth towards you know, particular goals. Often that will be retirement. They're not there yet. They need help actually building their wealth. So when you say very high net worth or high net worth or affluent, what, what are some of the numbers around that? Just to give me an understanding of you know, what, what does that mean? Is it a million dollars, $10 million, $100 million? <laughs> uh, when, when I say very high, you're talking more tens of millions. Yeah, yeah wow. Okay. Yeah. And so that's a, that's a lot to manage, right? That's mm. a lot of responsibility. Mm. So, so let me go back before we get into kind of more the detail of what you do. So I believe you started in mathematics. How did, how did, how did that yeah. come about? What did you become a maths teacher? I believe you did it for a little while. I did. I did. What, so, what attracted you to mathematics? Though? Mathematics, I, I'm a mathematician. My first degree was in mathematics and applied chemistry. I like mathematics because, you know, for me, there's not a lot of grey. It's all black and white. Um, <laughs> Certainly. <you> can, <laughs> it's great to be able to you know, prove a, a theorem and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just the sort of person I am. Um, yeah, so I was a teacher for a little while, and then I was lecturing at, at, at mathematics at university as well. Yeah, yeah. And you did you enjoy that teaching sort of space? Teaching was great. I was teaching in technical schools. I don't think they exist anymore, but secondary schools. Was, um, it, was that here in Melbourne, or is that in uh, yeah, Victoria in Bendigo? Yeah. Or? It was in Echuca and Bendigo. Oh, nice. Where you yeah. grew up, yeah. Yeah. The, the, the kids were great. They were very enthusiastic as long as you taught them the right way. Mm. The system wasn't that great. I think there's been a lot of improvements since, since then, but yeah. I decided that I really wanted to get out and do something a bit more interesting. Yeah. And, yeah. and how did that lead you to financial planning? Like, yeah. huh. Well, after lecturing, I went and did actuarial consulting for a while. That was at Towers Parent, one of the leading consulting firms. So just explain to listeners what that actually is. An actuary is a mathematician that works in finance, insurance, or superannuation. So we specialised in superannuation. I was there, we were dealing with uh, very large superannuation funds, a lot of government superannuation funds, mm. and they were typically defined benefit superannuation funds. So Super funds these days, you invest money, it grows with um, you know the investment returns, yeah. and then you have a figure at the end of the day. A defined benefit fund is a really old-fashioned fund where you work for an employer for 30, 40 years, 
your benefit at the end is actually guaranteed as a multiple of your salary yeah. when you retire. Mm. Um, you need actuaries because it's all based on probabilities and how many people you think will actually make it to retirement. Yeah. Some people pass away along the way. Some people will last 30, 40 years after retirement. Mm. You've got to plan for all those things. So it's a lot of statistical modeling, it sounds like. It is, yeah. 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 Interesting. Yeah. And how long did you do that for? Six years. Oh, wow. So a long time. Mm. Wow. And so you would get to know, I guess, not individual people, but um, you'd get to know people's lives, people's, I guess, financial outcomes in a way, which kind of leads itself. I can see how that, you know, it's a hop, mm. step and jump away from financial planning in a way. Was, mm. that, was that how it happened? Or? Sort of. If you're doing actuarial consulting, you really... I mean, a lot of people want to help the, the members of the super funds, but you're not dealing with the members. You're dealing with the boards of trustees. Yeah. I decided after six years that I really wanted to deal with people themselves, mm. not the boards of trustees. So that's why I went into financial planning, because now I deal with you know, real people helping with real situations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. which is get back to the teaching thing. It's, it's being in front of the class. It's the, yeah. the, the, the joy of actually you know communicating and dealing with people yeah. and helping them in some way. So I can see that sort of trait. So what was your first job in financial planning? I was working for J.B. Weir and Son. I so love J.B. Weir. I used to deal with him back in the day. Yeah, yeah it's a pretty well-known name. Yeah. yeah. I started off as the technical person that was looking after all of the advisors in Australia. And then I thought, well, I can do that and give advice as well. Yeah. So I was a financial planner and the technical resource for all the advisors. Yeah. When you say technical, you mean like, IT sort of technical or more? No, like? no. So uh, legislation. So, ah. yeah, that was in 94 and there were a lot of changes going through super in ni- 1994. Yeah. So it was about understanding all the legislation, how that would affect their clients, coming up with various solutions for them, strategies that would ha- help them achieve their goals. Yeah, wow. That's interesting. So you're like the expert on this sort of thing, so which is, which is very useful if you've got a client in that space. <laughs> yeah, I've been around for a while. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you look so young. Now. And, and so then you started dealing with clients and, and you must have had to do some retraining from, you know, to get into the financial planning area, do some courses and so forth. And even mm. now there's been a lot of changes and we'll, yeah. we'll get to those. So then from Jabby Weir, you went to some other companies. So mm. maybe just name a few for those who haven't been here LinkedIn profile yet. Okay, so from there I went to UBS. Mm. Back then it was called Potter Warburg and then UBS Warburg. A big American company, right? Oh, a Swiss. Actually, oh, yeah, European, that's right. Yeah, so UBS is Swiss. So it's one of the largest private banks in the world. Mm. Yeah, and they've got trillions of dollars of clients and funds invested. Went from there to an accounting firm, Pitcher Partners, mm. then Westpac Private Bank. I was one of the executive financial planners there. I think there are only 12 in the country at the time. Oh, wow. Oh, really? Well, because do they still do that financial planning? Or? Westpac, not so much, I mm. think. I think they might still have people in private bank. Mm. And I think ANZ and CBA do too. Yeah. But most of the other planners have decided to get out of that post-Royal Commission. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Big changes from that, wasn't they? Yeah. Where were you when that happened? Were you at the bank? Or? Royal Commission, I was here or UBS? UBS, I think. I went back to UBS a second time. Oh, there you go. Yeah, yeah. so I didn't did. burn bridges or anything like that. <laughs> <laughs> I was amazing friends. So yeah. what, what year was the Royal Commission? Was it, it seems like only about five years ago, but seems like a long time doesn't it it would have been yeah it would have been about five years ago yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. and and there was a lot of ramifications from that maybe for the people who don't didn't keep up abreast of 
of it, maybe sort of describe a little bit about what happened. A lot of the focus with the Royal Commission was on people, you know, advisors doing the right thing by their clients. There was a lot of press around vertical integration where you had a bank that not only not only provided advice to clients, but also designed and distributed the financial products that they were trying to sell to clients. Yeah. And yeah. there were these embedded Conflict of interest, really. Conflicts of interest. Yeah. So a lot of banks, well, pretty much all the banks now, have been getting out of financial advice because of that, because, mm. you know, there was a perceived conflict of interest there. There are lots of other things that came out too, you know, advisors really taking fees from clients when they were really, you know, not providing any service at all. Yeah. Even when the clients were dead. Yeah, well, so, how to provide uh, service then, isn't it? You'd think so, wouldn't you? Yeah. yeah. So there was a lot of really bad press, mm. and there's been a lot of legislation that's come out of that as well. Mm. Makes our life, you know, for, for the 98% of people who actually do the right thing, mm. makes life pretty difficult because there's so much more legislation and regulation. Yeah. Overall, I think it was a good thing in some ways because it then it's going to help improve the overall opinion of the financial planning industry and only the good ones are going to stay in, I would imagine, because there's retraining. People who you know, have been doing it for a lot of years and, and really want to be in the business will be there and the people who are, I guess, looking for a way to make money without doing abiding mm. by legislation won't be able to do that. Well, it's pretty controversial at the moment because with these new education requirements, there are people who have been great advisors for 20 or 30 years mm. that don't necessarily have the original degree that was specified by FASIA. Yeah. I'm what's, what's FASIA? is the, the body that body. the government set up to actually put together these codes of conduct that required advisors to have certain levels of education. Yeah. The problem with that is that they brought in rules that you had to have either a degree in financial services or some related degree. Okay. People like me, for example, mathematics yeah, and mathematics, chemistry, yeah. not really related. So there, there are a lot of you know really great advisors in the industry who have been here for a very long time, have done a really great job for their clients, never had a problem with the regulators, but all of a sudden, in you know four years' time, five years' time, they'll have to leave the industry unless they go and get another degree. Really? Yeah. I thought it was just like upskilling rather than... No. So you have to go back and get it... Yeah. Start a degree from scratch. As it stands at the moment, but FASIA is ending on the 31st of December. Oh. And ASIC and the Treasury are splitting the responsibilities between them. Oh, really? Oh, that's interesting. And we're waiting to see what comes out of that. Yeah, because, I mean, that's an unintended consequence of getting someone who's, you know, post-50 to go back into university and start their training again. Yeah. is a kind of uh, arduous task. I'd imagine it would be a, a bridging course or something like that, surely. Not at the moment, no. no. Interesting. No. So there, there's really been two things they've imposed. They've imposed the advisor's exam that everyone has to do. Mm. And, and that's fair enough because that's a very broad-based general exam on stuff that if you were providing advice to clients, you really should know. Yeah, well, and that's, that's the measurement of outcome, not the enforced input. Yeah, is in training. You go. It's, it's like a driving test. If you can, if you can drive the car and pass the test, you should be able to drive a car. Yeah. Regardless of how much training you've done, you know you need practice. But mm. you know, same sort of thing, I guess. And if you've been doing it for years, you, I'm sure you'd, you'd understand the regulations and you'd, you'd be yeah, able to do that. Yeah. So most people have got through. There are some advisors that are struggling with that as well. Mm. There are some that think that maybe they shouldn't be in the industry. Yeah. Wow. But 
you know, they often argue that, well, if I'm just a stockbroker, for example, I'm only dealing with stocks. Mm. I'm not doing all these other things. I'm not providing advice on that. So it's pretty controversial. Yeah, interesting. And does that mean that there's there's a lot less uh, financial planners out there in the market? Yeah, it's supply and demand. So demand for financial advice is increasing, but through what the government's been doing, supply is reducing. Yeah. So they're, they're talking about maybe a third of advisors leaving the industry. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah, that's a lot. It's, yeah. inter- it's really interesting, I find, with that, because it's the same as accounting. I've been interviewing the other partners, and, mm. and there's a lack of accounting people as well. Um, so there's a lack of qualified professionals in all these areas, mm. which, which obviously is going to be good for the people staying in the industry because there's you know, yep. there's, there's a great <laughs> number of customers, which is fantastic. But people need advice. You know, they need to have, you know, it's useful to have advice, particularly when it comes to things like what to invest in, family, succession planning, mm. business and personal finance mix. So I want to talk about a few of those sure. items because I think it's really important that people get some broad recommendations. We're not giving specific advice, of course. Can't do that. But just in terms of a lot of the things that people might be thinking about. Mm. And one of them we talked about a little bit before was crypto because that's <laughs> very, very public at the moment. And, you know, uh, as, as a person with a self-managed super fund himself, you know, I find myself thinking about, oh, gee, should I get in or not? And, you know, from a logical perspective of someone who's done 15 years of business school, I can't see the logic. Yeah. <laughs> However, there's lots of people making lots of money out of these 1,200 different cryptocurrencies and yeah. more every day. Fear of, fear of missing out. Yeah. Fear of missing out. And, yeah. uh, you know, I, I've read some books on financial investing and Warren Buffett says, you know, don't get FOMO, <laughs> basically. Yeah. Invest in what you know, invest in what you understand, mm. which, which is what's holding me back. But I'm curious from your experience, do your customers ask you about this and is it coming up or are they more people with, you know, high net worth people are more sensible than that? I would say that a lot of our clients have a bit more experience. So they're not necessarily really young people, although mm. we do have a few young ones that are part of families. They have a bit more experience. They're not chasing the latest trend. Mm. We have been talking to a few. Some people have been asking questions. We're not recommending that they go invest in Bitcoin or Ethereum or something right now. Mm. What we have been thinking about is picks and shovels. Mm. So instead of investing in the cryptocurrencies themselves, maybe invest in the the firms that are actually designing and building blockchain to enable these cryptocurrencies to exist. That might be a better way of playing it and maybe not quite so volatile. Yeah, and, and you know, it is obviously volatile. And yeah. It's quite an interesting space in that it's grown to be such a big part of the industry and mainstream people are getting involved in it now. Mm. Um, I believe the banks are, are looking at it from a, a trade to enable trading from it. But again, that's a pick and shovel. You know, the banks are making money on the trade. They're not, yeah, <laughs> they're not investing right. in it. So, yeah. you know, they're, they're, not, they're not dumb banks. <laughs> yeah. They don't know how to make money. And so it's sort of interesting that it's becoming more mainstream, mm. yet I'm just not sure where it's going to go. And no one really knows, I guess. No. It's up in the air. And that's the thing, you know, that the, in Warren Buffett's book I read, it was the first rule of investing is don't lose your money. So, <laughs> you know, which I thought was quite a, quite a really plain way of saying, you know, trying to hold on to the dollars you've got rather yeah. than make more on it, you know, and risk losing it all. But um, what about other areas? So so you deal with a lot of, I guess, family offices, you know, where you've got a family. So maybe the parents own a business. Yep. They're, they're doing quite well. They might have children or relatives they want to look after. And so, you know, would you deal with the children of, of those people if yeah. they, just for their basic, even if they haven't got a lot of money at the moment, you know, do you deal with 
the whole family? Is that, is that part of the? the yeah, we we do have families that you know we do exactly that. So it might be that we're looking after mum and dad, we're looking after their wealth, helping them achieve their goals, but also taking on the kids as well, teaching them about investing, what that means, teaching them about planning for goals and budgeting. Sometimes oh, that, that it, must be popular with the young ones. <laughs> well, you know, so, <laughs> sometimes not. Sometimes the, the kids know about the wealth mm. and sometimes they just know that mum and dad are well off, but yeah. they don't know truly what sort of wealth we're talking about. Yeah. yeah. And maybe they don't even understand. I mean, it's, it's hard to fathom if you're a young person, you know, what millions of dollars actually is. Mm. And it might sound like a tremendous amount of money but, you know, if it's tied up in your family home and, you know, yeah. a business where well, you can't, yeah. it's not liquid, you know, you can't just go and yeah, exactly. you know, buy yeah. a Tesla with it. So it's, it's interesting the education part comes into it. That's, mm. that's, I didn't actually know that, that that's part of it. It's, I guess it's mentoring, isn't it? You know, it, the next it generation. really is. Yeah. It really is. And it's, we do mentoring with all, our, all of our clients, mm. you know, the, even the very wealthy ones. They might have been very successful in their own business, but mm. that doesn't mean they know about investing in you know Australian shares, international shares, bonds, mm. that sort of thing. Yeah. So we're always mentoring when we're dealing with clients anyway. It's just that sometimes we're doing a little bit more with the younger ones. Yeah. Yeah. yeah interesting. And so what are you, what are you favouring? I know you can't give advice, but you know what are you favouring at the moment? If shares have been going well over the last few years. Yep. Post Corona, interest rates are low. Not much money in cash at the moment. So and people know. are talking about inflation as well. Yeah, yeah, inflation could be yeah. deflation we've been talking about. Uh, um, most people are talking about inflation increasing. Mm. Yeah. What about, you know, there's impacts with China and so forth. So mm. are you saying to people be more, you know, have a conservative stance or what's your thinking? I mean, that's really getting back to risk tolerance as well. Mm. And there are two ways of looking at that. So the, the typical way that people look at risk profiling, risk tolerance, is to talk about volatility in the market and you know whether people can actually bear that volatility. Some people don't like the idea that they invest and tomorrow the investment could be worth 30% less. Yeah. Other people are okay with it because they know that you know we're investing for the long period and over that long period, chances are that you know, that's gonna be worth more than other types of investments. So yeah. that's part of the mentoring. The other way of considering risk is looking at their goals and when they want to achieve them. Mm. So that's more the actuarial way of looking at where you have a goal, you need to achieve it, say, in five or ten years' time. Yeah. What level of investment risk do you need to take now, given their assets now, to actually achieve that goal in mm. five or ten years? Mm. Sometimes people need to take a big risk to get there because they haven't saved a lot so far. Yeah. Other times, they're already pretty wealthy. Mm. They probably don't don't need to take a lot of risk. Yeah. And that's a good conversation to have with them as well, saying, look, this is what you tell us you want to achieve. From what we're looking at, you don't need to take a lot of risk to actually get there. You can still take that risk if you want and have more money at the end Mm. and maybe help the kids with buying their houses or whatever you want to do. Yeah. But to achieve those goals, you don't need to take a lot of risk. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It seems to be a kind of game of the mind. Um, yeah. When you think about money, people, and, and particularly when things go wrong, the financial crisis of years ago, you know, I was saying I was in the tech boom and bust of the 2000s and yeah. just had the, you know, the coronavirus, you know. So there's always periods of instability followed by periods mm. of, of growth, which is what we've experienced in the last, you know, few decades. 
And so people's reactions to that are very emotional, aren't they? Mm. And, and being a mathematician, you're probably not as emotional as many. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm very extroverted. I, I, look, I look at your shoes when I talk to you. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and so do you try and separate their emotions as part of your sort of mentoring? Yeah, you have to. And that, that's part of talking to them about investment bricks. They, they need to learn that you have to expect volatility. You yeah. have to expect ups and downs. If you didn't expect that, then you'd have the investor just in cash and turn deposits. Yeah, do that. And, and not no doing very well. <laughs> yeah, and expect virtually no growth. Yeah. So you have to take risk to grow wealth, mm. and mm. as you know, teach them how how to appreciate that, how to understand that, what level of risk we need to take. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And do it in a responsible way, of course. Yeah, of know. course. And, yeah. and, you know, then, then comes in other things to, to protect risks like insurance and these sorts of things. So I presume, do, do you do insurance as well? Yeah. Is that part yeah. of it? Yeah. Do you recommend high levels of insurance for your clients and the kids or do you have a moderate sort of perspective on that? It depends. It depends, yeah. <laughs> well, that's, it does. It, it really does. does. It mm-hmm. depends on their circumstances and what they want to achieve. If they're telling me that they've got a certain goal and maybe their lifestyle costs X dollars, mm they've already got the assets that could produce that anyway, Mm. then they might not need insurance. Mm. Um, People who are are, are younger, starting out, might have high goals in the future, might might have a mortgage and young kids, Mm. they probably will need insurance and will be calculating how much they need Mm. under various contingencies. So that, let's say if husband dies, what would the surviving spouse need to look after the kids, pay off the mortgage, that sort of thing. Yeah. Part of Paul Clements's podcast, he was talking about the the process that we go through and he was talking mm. about reviews. Mm. So this is something that we'd be reviewing each year as well. Mm. You know, how they're going relative to their their goals mm. and the plan. But also looking at, well, do we still need that level of insurance? Given that your investments have been doing so well, yeah. maybe we don't need quite so much. Mm. Premiums grow exponentially with age for insurance, yeah. like life, life insurance and TBD. So you want to make sure that you're not paying too much and you won't get really the benefit for it. Yeah. yeah. And that's interesting because from the perspective of some people that, who are listening to the podcast who may have had financial advisors back in the day before the Royal Commission and, and maybe back earlier, there was a, a big push to, to add more insurance because there was commissions on it. And and it was, it, I think there was a problematic in the industry of over-insuring people because it was better for the financial advisor. But this is interesting because you're not, you're, you're, you get paid a fee to, to give advice. And yes. so therefore you're there to look after the client and not, not necessarily, it doesn't matter whether they have... A, B, or C level of insurance is what's appropriate, yeah. which, which is very refreshing because that's not what other people may have experienced in their lives. It's, it's really a difference between a private salesman and a proper advisor. Yeah. So a proper advisor is more concerned with strategy mm. and structure, the investments and the insurance are the things that you sort out last. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. yeah. And, that, and that's where, I guess, the consultative approach that Paul spoke about is really useful. and. And I think from, from memory, he said that to start with, you go into the website, then you feel informed, and then you'll spend an hour with people yeah. just to see if you're a good fit. 
which mm. I thought was, was quite a generous <laughs> allotment of time. But I guess you're setting up for a long-term relationship and it's a relationship. It's very personal, I would imagine. You're talking yeah, about people's life goals and their personal situations because their, their assets are related to that. How do they want to treat their children in the future? I mean, that's very personal sort of relationship. So I guess that's an enjoyable part of the role as well is get really getting to know people over the years. It is enjoyable. I mean, the, the nice thing about financial planning, I mean, it's, it's not nearly as technical as other things I've done in the past, mm. but you have a lot of variety you get to know lots of different types of people different families you get to know them very well mm. particularly you know when you're talking about not only them helping them achieve their goals but also talking about their estate planning and how they want to look after the family when they go mm. you get to know them very very well and that makes it really interesting yeah 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 and, and like what's the tenure of your sort of clients i mean if you if you dealt with clients for a long period of time well i've only been here five years mm. but some of our clients have been with the firm for you know 40 years wow yeah. <laughs> that's amazing so, <laughs> i'm the you kid on the block yeah that's, that's, and that's the thing it's a long-term sort of industry it's like yeah, accounting i yeah. guess you you tend to stick with them unless there's a real real reason to change like your advisor leaves or something like that yeah or you move but so do many of the clients who do the financial advice, they're also accounting clients? Is it sort of, a, yeah? It, you don't have to be, but is it is it a natural fit between that, do you think? It is a natural fit. It works really well for the client when the their professional advisors are working as a team. Yeah. So typically they'll start off as a client of the accounting side. So doing their tax And then they'll clients. be referred to us. Yeah. Um, but it works really well for the client where I can, you know, call the the accountant will go around and have a chat with him or her and just say, you know, Joe Bloggs, this is the situation. What do you think I'm planning on doing this? How's that going to affect your tax plans? Mm. That works really well for them. Yeah, client. that's good. Yeah. And that's all part of the service, yeah. I guess. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, that's good. So if there was, say, someone, you know, came to you and, and did their one hour and so forth, do you charge per amount invested or per time? How does, how does that kind of work? You might be asking. Okay, so mm. we'll charge in a variety of ways. We'll charge for advice. Mm. So I think Paul was talking about this too. We'll provide a what's called a statement of advice in the first instance. So mm. we'll collect all the information, talk to the client, understand their goals and objectives, provide advice to help them achieve those. We'll set, we'll set a fee for that advice. If the client agrees to that, then we'll do the advice. After that, there'll be a cost for implementing that advice. Mm. And then on an ongoing basis, we'll be charging them fees to regularly review, report, meet with them, mm. adjust strategies, etc. Is that quarterly or half yearly or what do you sort of recommend? Depends on the client. Some clients need a bit more attention, at least to start off with. Yeah. We might be doing quarterly or half yearly. Mm. Once things settle down, most of the time it's just once a year. Oh, okay. So it's, yeah, it's pretty light. But the investments have been looked at far more regularly than yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And that's the thing is I would rather pay for advice than the old way of paying commissions. Yeah. Because then, then you're working for the client to improve their situation rather than based on any product. Um, yeah. If I deals. sell them this, I'll get this much commission. Yeah, yeah. yeah. it's just yeah. a far better way to, I, I think anyway, more makes me feel better as a client if I was mm. to do that. So. Makes us feel better too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a, much more transparent, I think, is, is we, we, we do get commissions if we sell life insurance or total and permanent disability income protection, that sort of thing. Yeah, but you disclose that, right? You, you we, tell, we do, you yeah. Tell them up front so they, they know about that. Yeah. And that's just how that industry works at the moment. Correct, yeah. correct. But it's not for those other products. Yeah. 
So look, that was really interesting. I appreciate the time and me asking some of the questions that I'm sure that the, the average consumer would be curious about. Yeah. Just before we go, is there any final sort of tips or advice about what's happening in the world today that you would get people to think about? I, I think that being an old crusty guy who's been around for a while, <laughs> you tend to look at these things. The media always wants to sell a bad story yeah. because they they still have this mentality that they have to sell papers even though no one buys papers yeah, well, anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. True. There's a lot of froth and bubble and there's a lot of negative stuff in the media. People need to take a step back, not get so involved in it and think that the whole premise of financial planning and the way you build wealth is a little often and use compound interest and that's your friend. Mm. Yes, things can go up and down, but over the long period of time, as long as you're investing regularly, compound interest will get you there. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. Okay. No, that's good advice. I like that. All right. Well, I appreciate your time, Greg. That was really interesting. And yeah, if thanks. people want to get in touch, we'll put your email address in the show notes. Yep. Uh, or contact you through LinkedIn. Is that an appropriate way? Probably the best way. That, going through our website or just calling the office. Yeah, okay, yeah. great. Yeah. Old school, call the office. <laughs> yeah, I know. Still works. <laughs> I know. Who would have thought? Who would have thought? Exactly. <laughs> I really appreciate your time. And if listeners are interested in reaching out, we'll have the details in the show notes. And I thank you for your time, Greg. All right, thanks. Thanks for listening to the Next Year Melbourne podcast, the podcast designed to help grow your accounting practice. The contents of this podcast is for general information only and not to be used for specific advice purposes or for formulating decisions. Nexia Melbourne Pty Limited, its directors and its employees excludes all liabilities relating to relying on the information and ideas contained within. Nexia Melbourne, ABN 46109590169, is an independent firm of chartered accountants with a limited liability by a scheme approved under the professional standards legislation. It is affiliated with, but independent from, Nexia Australia Pty Ltd. Nexia Australia Pty Ltd is a member of the Nexia International, a leading global network of independent accounting and consulting firms. To gain specific advice from our firm, please contact us at info at nexiamelbourne.com.au.